Yes, hi. <laughs> hi. Hello. It's as if we're only meeting this very moment, not as if we've been in this Zoom room talking to each other for minutes now. Uh, don't reveal our secrets. <laughs> no one can know. They can't study those secrets until they're at least 40. Right, according to some. According to some. Yeah, controversial hot take. Michael, hi, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I really want to take a shower, actually. Well, too bad you have to make this podcast instead. No, I want to make the podcast too. Why can't I do want to do two things at the same time or not <laughs> wanting to do them at the same time, but, you know, doing them. I want to do them. Right. You want to have it all. You're a modern woman. I'm a modern woman. I don't know how to pull it off. Yeah, right. But I want to pull it off. <laughs> I, I feel love like that for this you. is the beginning of like a commercial for like a lotion or something like that. Right. You're on the go, but you need to moisturize your skin. Yeah. Yeah. When you live in the middle of the woods, you forget to kind of shower. Oh, yeah. Very familiar with this dilemma. And, you know, work now is mostly interacting with like pixels. Mm hmm. Pixels don't care. Right. Pixels don't judge you. Hava, how are you? Um, Bruch Shem. <sighs> I'm well. <laughs> um, I'm fine. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. And it was the wrong day to wake up on the wrong side of the bed because I have so many meetings today. Although now that we've started recording the podcast, I'm feeling much more bubbly. So maybe the combination of wrong side of the bed plus wrong day has finally come around to equal the right place at the right time. I'm feeling positive for what my mental state and what your mental state will be like at the end of this podcast. Great. Because yeah, I'm looking forward to our guest and what our right. guest is bringing. I know. We have a guest today. Let's just die. I don't have anything more to say about how I am. You know, my the existential plight of any mortal being is basically the same from day to day, unchanged. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and when someone says that, that's how you know they're really fine. And that nothing is going on. Totally, totally normal. Totally. <laughs> anyway, dear listeners, today we have on the show Jonah MacGelfand. Jonah is the co-founder slash editor of Gashmius Magazine. He got his master's in Jewish studies from the Graduate Theological Union, where his research focused on neo-Hasidic leadership. He has spent time studying at Yeshiva Hadar and the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, and will be starting his first year of Hebrew College Rabbinical School this fall. He has been published by Tikkun Magazine, The Lair House, and Hey Alma, and his academic research has been published in McGill University's The Ark, the Berkeley Journal of Religion and Theology, and the UCLA Journal of Religion. Jonah, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. I haven't heard that read out loud before. <laughs> it made me very uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> great, great. So we're off on the right foot. And my hair tie just broke. So wow. now my hair is down and I'm ready to... <laughs> That's right. Let your hair down. Get loose. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, our pleasure, our delight. When I saw the announcement about Gashmius coming into existence, I was immediately very excited and messaged several people in my life to say, have you seen this? Have you heard oh about this? I'm so glad. That makes me so happy to hear. Why don't you tell our listeners what Gashmius is and why you helped birth it into this world? Totally. Gashmius Magazine is a... I might even say the premiere, considering it's the only, <laughs> oh. is a neo-Hasidic online magazine that 
kind of focuses specifically on what we're calling progressive neo-Hasidism. The impetus for starting it was there's a fantastic Facebook group, which if y'all aren't in, you should join, called Ask the Neo-Hasidic Base Medrash. Oh, yeah. Which is great. And I posted in it and I was like, am I just missing it? Is there no, is there a place to publish this type of stuff specifically? Because I was, I had been writing stuff and everyone was kind of like, yeah, there was this thing in the 90s or there was this thing in the <laughs> 80s and, you know, Reb Zellman started this thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't really anything right now. So from that post, Danny Kraft, who's one of the other founders, just messaged me and was like, I'd be down to start working on this if you want. And I was like, great. So we spent a little bit less than a year planning for the first volume, which we put out last December. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback. People have been messaging their friends about it. I'm just (laughs) Right. The idea is that we believe that the theology of what people are calling neo-Hasidism, which is taking Hasidic ideas from the Hasidic movement, which um, I don't know how in-depth we want to go into like the history of that type of stuff. But Listeners who are curious about the Hasidic movement can listen back to our three-part series on Hasidism. Right, with Lex. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay, so then I, I know that listeners are very familiar, so I won't give too much, but... The intervention that Gashmius is specifically trying to do is, is take those ideas as they're presented through the neo-Hasidic movement, which is to say for people not living within Hasidic communities, and connect them to the progressive Jewish world, the progressive world more broadly, out of a belief that Jewish mysticism, and specifically the way it's formalized and conceived of in Hasidism, neo-Hasidism, has something to say to that community. And also the other way around, like we want to bring that to the left. And we also want to bring mm-hmm. the Jewish left more towards the religious stuff. I have a lot of friends who live in that side of the Jewish world in the leftist Jewish progressive spaces, and they want a connection point to religion, to tradition, to spirituality, and don't have an entry point. And so Gashmus is kind of trying to enter both sides for those people who have the politics but don't have the spirituality or those who have the spirituality and don't have the politics yet and just try to make those, try to break down that binary a little bit more. Great. I love that. I was really excited when I saw it founded partially because I feel like a really prominent critique of neo-Hasidism is that it's sort of wishy-washy, which is sort of a, an adjective that covers a, a whole actual range of critiques. Mm-hmm. But when I saw the kind of stuff published in the first volume and I saw sort of the vibe of the magazine uh, it felt like an, an antidote to that criticism in a certain way, like treating the subject seriously and rigorously and also with good graphic design. Uh, like that felt like it was a, a good step forward for the world of neo-Hasidism. Yeah. Something that um, someone shared with me when they first read it was this idea of synaptic pruning. Have you heard of this? Like where it's no, I know, right? Like I, I hadn't. So It's this idea that there's some, oh my gosh, I can't believe I brought this up. I don't know science, but it was something about (laughs) how your brain every once in a while has to prune the synaptic like connectors because you can't just keep making them. And so it like organizes them for the really important things. And someone was like, oh, what Gashmius is doing is like taking all these disparate things and trying to put them into one place. So like, instead of having to like scour the internet or like read every book, you know, Art Green has written with all the footnotes, you can like go to right. one place as a starting place. And that's really what we're trying to do is like create a resource where people can both learn about what neo has been in the past and like imagine what it can be in the future. Wow. Mm. 
I feel like what you've just told me is that what I always thought about memory, which is that like it's not a function of limited space and the place where I'm supposed to store people's names isn't actually taken up by obscure Shabbatite Tzvi facts is actually the reverse and it is true and i am retroactively forgiven for everything i've ever forgotten a hundred percent as a medical professional i I can confirm that (laughs) yeah i missed that part in your bio somehow (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i had to cut some things (laughs) burn them if you will (laughs) you say that you were writing stuff and you were sharing with people and people were like oh what you're writing is kind of like something that maybe existed in the 80s what Mm -hmm. existed in the 90s when you were in that moment trying to figure out what to do with your writing and, and like what to do with these thoughts, what was different from what you were thinking than what was currently available then? I'm imagining you have comparisons to how you approach spirituality and how your magazine approaches spirituality that differ from sort of reform, reconstructionist, renewal sort of mm-hmm. approaches. Like what's different about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like there are like two ways I want to answer that. One is like kind of the practical publishing side of it, which is like the neo-Hasidic world. I feel like in the last, and if any listeners have differing opinions on this, like I think that's totally real. I'm going to say like in the last 20, 30 years, what was a very diverse and still is a diverse and unformalized movement, but like had these centers where Especially while like Reb Zellman was alive, they had a specific thing they were doing it. There's like the art green version of doing it. But the way people were writing was very academic. There's places to publish academic analyses of thinkers, academic analyses of how Hasidic thought has ended up in all those movements you just referenced, reform, reconstructionists. But that's not really what I was interested in doing. I spent a while in the academic world and had an idea of wanting to continue with that. And then was like, I don't know how much that's going to change the Jewish world or bring these, like, I don't know if the ivory tower of academia, although I still feel very connected to that. And I still read academic books and write academic papers, how much that's going to impact the day-to-day life of, of Jews. And I really felt like Hasidism, the ideas contained there had something to say to people. And I grew up not knowing anything about them. So the idea was kind of trying to take that and make it colloquially accessible rather than like academically accessible. And there are places that you could do that, places like Tikkun, places that were on my bio that I've published in, thank God. But that's like one in 10, you know, that's not their main thing. So I wanted a place where that'd be the main thing. So that's one answer. The other question that I heard you asking was like, why neo-Hasidism over anything else? And I think, I I don't want to transfer us or transition us uh, prematurely, but I think some of the answers will be contained in the source that I'm going to bring um, because it kind of has these like central ideas within it of Hasidism. But in short, I'll say the, the, the name Gashmius comes from this idea of Avodaba Gashmius, which is a central Hasidic idea or Gashmiut, which is that Gashmius, Gashmiut is, this, is physicality, the physical world, and Avodah is, is worship or service, practice. Whereas a lot of other mysticisms say you have to transcend the world and leave the world to connect to God, you know, like fasting and all these things like ascetic practices, meditating in a cave for 20 years, whatever it is. Hasidism says that the opposite. Hasidism says like, no, it's specifically through Gashmiut, through the physicality that you're going to serve God. And so that's why you hear of Hasidim like saying lechayim, like drinking alcohol and dancing and singing. And those things become central to practice rather than something that you should avoid. 
It's like, no, specifically through, specifically through engaging the physical world, are you going to serve God? And that idea for us at the magazine was kind of both for me, when I learned about that, a mind blowing spiritual idea, but it was also like, oh, that is a framework through which to engage in political work. It's not about turning away from the world and meditating internally and just navel gazing, which I love doing and I do. It's that. And also looking out into the world, you actually have to look out into the world. Like the physical world around you is part of your service of God. Like you can't turn away from people. You can't turn away from material conditions. That makes sense. So, okay, you heard it here first. Reform <laughs> and reconstructionist Jews are navel gazers. <laughs> no, we're a lot more navel gazy. Well, I don't think it has to be a premature transition. I think this can be a great transition to talking about text and meta thoughts about neo-Hasidism can just be woven throughout. So first tell us, like, what is this text you've brought to us before we get into the content of it? Totally. So I've created a little source sheet. Oh, yes. We will have a source sheet link in the description, listeners, for you to be able to follow along. We're going to be pulling from three different sources, which I'll introduce as we go along. But the main source is from a Rebbe, a Hasidic Rebbe called Menachem Nachem Tursky of Chernobyl. He is a, depending how you count, like second, third generation Hasidic master. He was a student of both the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Israel Ben Eliezer, who is the figure around whom Hasidism kind of forms, and the Magad of Mezrich, Dovber Friedman of Mezrich, who was the main disciple that kind of galvanized it into a movement. He was the oldest disciple of the Magad, and he is awesome. He's one of my favorites. <laughs> Great. Um, and I was learning this year, I spent a lot of time with him this year, um, as in like learning his book, he's dead. Um, right. But <laughs> a lot of time learning <laughs> him this year and stumbled upon in one of my chavrutas, this text that just blew my mind, which is in Parsha and more. Uh, the way a Hasidic book functions usually is it's with the Parshiot, um, with the different Torah portions. And there's just drashas, sermons from different years, just put one after each other for each Torah portion. And just an interesting story. It's not Hasidic without a story that they're pretty much all usually, especially in the early years, it changed as time went on, but they're usually written down by disciples. And the sermons would be given on Shabbos, on a holiday when writing isn't allowed. So it would be given around a table with a bunch of disciples. The disciple after the holiday or Shabbos was over would from memory transcribe what was a Yiddish sermon into Hebrew and there was a Yiddish sermon that he heard after a few l'chaims. So like, <laughs> you can tell sometimes that things are a little confusing. It's not clear. Things that don't track perfectly. And they came to the Moranayim. In a lot of Jewish texts and Hasidus as well, you call the Rebbe by the name of their primary book. So Menachem Nachem of Chernobyl becomes the Moranayim, which is the name of his book. And they came to him on his deathbed and they said, this is your book. And he opened it and he looked through and he tore out every page <laughs> that he remembered giving. Because if he remembered giving it, it wasn't the Shekhinah speaking through him, and it wasn't really Torah. Oh my god! What we have in this Whoa. book is the parts of his sermons that he didn't remember giving, which means that they were really from the Shekhinah, from the divine wow. presence. Automatic sermon giving only. Right, exactly. No conscious will allowed. Yeah. So, <laughs> so much for embracing the material, am I right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, um, I embrace all material things except for myself. Right. Except, except for, I did the synaptic pruning. Uh, to, <laughs> <laughs> right. To make room for the Shekhinah. Leave right. room for Shekhinah. That's what the youth pastor always says. So this source 
The source sheet you'll, you'll see, I called tasting God, eating as a replacement for sacrifices. So in biblical times, the way that people engaged with God was bringing a sacrifice to the temple, which the priests would sacrifice and they'd watch the smoke rise and they'd know that God accepted their sacrifice. Once the temple is destroyed, the rabbis gave us one replacement, which is prayer. And the Hasidim, according to this, what I'm going to argue, gave us another avenue to engage with God, which is taste. And the central question that we're going to have here is what would it mean to reconceptualize our eating as a replacement for sacrifices? So I'm really excited about this. Yeah, great. Sacrifices is a question very up in the show right now and also in my life in general, because we've been working on some stuff, a lot of stuff that has to do with the temple Mm. and just thinking about sacrifices then and what what is the true purpose of sacrifice is very um, on brand at the moment. So the Moranayim has a very clear idea. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thank God someone finally fucking does. As a disclaimer, before we jump in, I'm just going to say this source discusses food and eating and people have different relationships to those topics. So listeners just take care of your needs. The source that we are jumping into is, like I said, the fourth Drash on Parsha and more. We're jumping in in the middle of it. On the source sheet, I've given even more than I'm going to give now. Here, I think we'll just focus on like one or two paragraphs. But what I left on the source sheet, I left because it has, like I said before, Michael, like some really clear Hasidic ideas in it. And the way I've structured this source sheet, you'll see there's a translation from the Hebrew, a direct translation, and then like a main message section. So what we'll do for this parts that we're not going to read verbatim is just read the main message right now. Right. So the first thing we need to know, just a small idea that our souls are literally a piece of God. The piece of God that dwells within us is called our soul. And the goal of the spiritual life is to connect that piece of God that's in you to its root, which is which is God. Raises a lot of problems for a lot of Judaisms, but we'll gloss over it. I'm ha- like, let's have that conversation. <laughs> An important disclaimer also before jumping into Hasidic texts is we're not going to agree with everything that they say. <laughs> they're, they're, they have a very specific way of understanding how the world functions. And we might not agree. And there are things that I think we can still take from it. So let's see... What he, what he does with it. And then let's complicate it. Cause I'm really like, part of this is going to be complicating it. Great. So God dwells within you. There's a piece of God that dwells within you. It is your soul. The goal of life is to connect that piece to its root. Not just humans have that spark, that soul, literally everything in the world, my book, my pencil, the table I'm sitting on my computer, all have peace of God in them. And humans are the thing that have the ability to uplift that piece of God. So we have a piece of God in us. There's a piece of God on the table. By using the table, I have the ability to uplift that to God. That's our baseline assumption for Chassidus, for That's traditional right. Chassidus. Right. He then brings in an idea that in Brachot 55a, there's an idea that since the destruction of the temple, a person's table atones for them. So our table that we eat on is a replacement for the Mizbeach, for the altar on which the Korbanot, the sacrifices were burned. So we have a a piece of God within us. Everything has a piece of God within us. The table replaces the altar. And then he says, this is because eating is specifically an opportunity to connect the sparks of God that are in the food to their root. So there's a spark of God in us, there's a spark of God in everything. Our table replaces the sacrifices. And that is because in the food is the spark of God. And through eating, we can connect that to God. That's our baseline before we jump into what we're actually going to get into 
thoughts, questions on that so far? I mean, I'm on I'm on board. I've always been a fan of the idea of the table as a misbeach. Yeah, I'm curious to talk more about the way in which our eating elevates that stuff. Yeah. And also, this is like not really what we're going to I don't know whether we'll end up talking about this as much today, but God's sensual enjoyment of sacrifices has always been like a big sticker burr in my sock Mm. Um, Mm. for a long time. God like enjoying the smell of the sacrifices. And this feels like those parallels are sort of being even further reinforced by our own relationship to our little misbeach. So um, that's just like present in the cloud of unknowing with us in the room you don't like that hava i kind of like that i'm not saying i don't like oh, it okay. i'm saying it's it's just because something is sticker burn in my mental sock doesn't mean i don't like it it's okay. just uh, right, right, right. <laughs> it just is like it's it's complicated because we have so many different versions of god one version yeah. of God is totally compatible with sensual experience. And like a Maimonidean version of God is like, heaven forbid, we should ever think that God has a sensual experience. And so jiving those two together is always like uh, a challenge that yeah. Judaism and therefore all of us on this show have to contend with. So it's actually, I haven't thought, I hadn't thought about this before you just said that, but I actually think the source that we're reading right now might walk a middle ground. It might provide a way to to not answer that question, but maybe provide an answer to that question, which is really it's really striking me right now. Let's let's think about that. That could be so. Let let's see let's see where he takes this, and then let's come back to that question afterwards. That sound yeah, that sounds good. Take us along. This is the paragraph that I, I want to read in the Hebrew because it's really beautiful. He says, "Shehu sod ha'achila shenechshav." And this is the secret of why, of how eating is called a sacrifice, because you're connecting the sparks, nitzatzot, uh, or sparks, and the chiyut. The chiyut is like this life force, the part of God. So now he's jumping between vocab. Sometimes it's called the peace of God in you. Sometimes it's called your soul. Sometimes it's called the spark. Sometimes it's called the life force. They're all kind of referring to the same thing for our purposes. Right. And eating is connecting the life force, the sparks, the soul that's garbed in the food. And then this is, this is why this source until now, it's been pretty basic Hasidus 101. And now he says something, which is Hasidus 101 is still pretty fascinating. Now he says something that blows my mind. He says, And that life force, those sparks, is specifically the taste that you taste in the food. That's what God is. The, the life force and the sparks that's in the food, that's garbed in the food, is specifically the taste. He says, And that taste is ruchani, it's spiritual and not mamashi'i, like mamash, like real, physical, like, and it's the supernal life force that's garbed in the ma'achal hagashmi'i, in the physical food. So he uses that term gashmi'i, so I thought it was kind of cute to put mm, yeah. that. But, so what he's saying is that taste is literally the spark of God that's garbed in the food is, is taste, which is like so wild and I, I don't know how to, I, I want to hear what you guys have to think, because I don't really know what to make of that. Like, what does it mean that taste is literally God? I, I had a soup before this, 
it was like carrot ginger. And I was thinking about this as I was eating it. And I was like, okay, so the ginger is God, but it's not, the ginger is not God. The taste of the ginger is God. You know what I'm, It's like, what, is, yeah. what does that actually mean? Yeah. I mean, to my, my first thought was sort of like that this feels, uh, pretty friendly to like a Spinozan conception of God, like God is the sum of all natural forces. God is like sort of an emergent property of the system of the universe. Mm -hmm. Like food is this uh, like almost always like a diverse set of ingredients, even if it's just a single thing, it's like a diverse set of chemicals Mm. that come together to produce a taste that is like an emergent property of that food of those things coming together. That's only present when they're together in that specific way. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, it feels like it does really match up with a certain conception of the divine and that it's sort of like something that is, that is only present when all the pieces come together in the right way. And it's not necessarily reducible to any single piece of what's present on the plate. Ooh, I like that. That's beautiful. Mm. Michael, this is the second time I've looked at this, you know, before the episode and and now during the episode. And now I have a different take. Maybe he doesn't mean taste in the way we think about taste, but actually the experience of the food, Mm. like the conscious experience of the food and how we perceive it is actually the the godly portion. And and Mm. taste is even just a metaphor for that, like phenomenal. Is is that phenomenology, that kind of idea? Mm-hmm. Like our experience of yeah. the reality is the divine substance. Huh. Yeah, that's really, I really like both those those thoughts. Connecting it back to the discrepancy between different types of God liking sacrifices, like, or God can't like sacrifices because it's Maimonidean. Mm-hmm. It's making me think about maybe the part of God that enjoys the sacrifices is the part of God that dwells within us that likes the taste. Mm-hmm. And then the abstract God is the fact that we're alive eating, tasting at all. You know, it's like kind of there's there's a little middle ground there where we can say like, no, yeah, t- totally. God is undifferentiated. God is amorphous in all these Maimonidean perfections. But also my enjoyment, the pleasure I get from eating, taste is also literally God. <laughs> right, right. See, this is actually sort of brings me in my mind to a challenge that always comes up with sort of dealing with this kind of imminent spirituality, mm-hmm. which is like, what does this say about bad taste? And which is another way of saying, yeah. how do we deal with the existence of evil in the world yeah. if everything is permeated with divinity? You know, what about the taste of shit? Right, right. What's up with that? It's it's interesting that he just says ta'am and he doesn't say like, any qualifier for the top, the top Tom being taste. He doesn't mm-hmm. qualify it at all. It's not a good taste or a bad taste. It's just the taste. So if you eat shit like that, I guess is God too. You know what I mean? Like if, mm-hmm. and, and I, and when I was thinking about that in preparation for this conversation, it, to me, it became a opportunity to read that inclusively that as we're not talking about a specific experience with food or specific experience with taste we're talking about any experience with these things and every experience with these things and in the way that like he doesn't say positive or negative tom so too like in our relationships with we'll talk a little bit later about what do we actually mean when we say tom that's our second source but in our like different experiences our different lives we experience food differently we experience god differently 
And those positive, negative, neutral things are all still part of the experience of that. Right. I'm thinking now about, spoiler alert for all listeners, that the next class at Shalmala is going to be called The Flavor of Text. Um, wow. But I'm thinking about Tamemi Kra, which is uh, both a way we call cantillation markings and also could literally be translated as flavors of the text. Thinking about how Tamemi Kra and and cantillation in general is sort of like essential to the way text comes forth like in community and li in lived experience in a way that it's not when we just read it by ourselves like in our JPS Tanakh at home right. um, and something about like that Tom is like only manifest in its um, context of human experience and this Tom is like also essentially connected to the meeting of human and food mm. feels like there's a something there. Yeah. So the last paragraph that he takes the source, we'll go back kind of off the page. He says, so we have the idea that the taste is the spark of God that's garbed in the food. And then he says, by eating, you absorb the peace of God that's in the food. You connect it to the peace of God that's in you. And with that accumulated energy, vitality, you can go out and uplift peace of God and other things. So as a conclusion for his source, he's saying, and actually it's not even a conclusion, the drash continues for like five pages, but <laughs> for our, our excerpt is that he's saying, peace of God in you, peace of God in everything, table replaces altar, eating is the sacrifice because you are able to uplift the peace of God in the food. It's specifically the taste in, in the food that is God. And what is actually happening on a zoomed out level is the peace of God in me that's connecting to the peace of God in the food as I eat it, and then going out into the world and connecting to more pieces of God in the world. And that's what he says, that's how eating replaces the sacrifice. Whereas it used to be I had to travel to Jerusalem three times a year to burn a ram. Now, every time I sit down to my table, I am enacting that same connecting to God so that I could have the energy to go out and connect more things to God. Whatever God means. That's not... Right. Yeah. But that's the on one foot of what he's saying. Great. Love it. Love what he's saying. Very curious about the transition from going to the temple and burning a ram to the table as Mizbeach. Where were these sparks previously? I mean, it does actually make me feel... Usually I feel... A lot of emotions, but almost never excited about the sort of slaughtering-focused sections of Talmud and Torah. They're sort of like interesting in a way that any kind of detailed discussion of craft is interesting, but also kind of icky. Mm -hmm. um, but it does make me feel like, yeah, like we're preparing an animal for sacrifice in this context in order to sort of like send that to Am, mm -hmm. to the kind of God that can enjoy it. And in that context, like the sort of preparing it as carefully as possible feels like very more loving than it usually does. Mm, yeah. Mm. I'm just thinking like, I wish Chabad rabbis would go up to me in the street and just give me hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Have you elevated this, the Tom to God today? Are you Jewish? Here's a burger. Right. See, that's what I want. That's right. what I want. It's a good outreach for Hi, how are you? Right. True. Oh, we can yeah. go hand out... <laughs> Oh, and then people yeah. can call me Rebenu Tom. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's good. a good idea. Thank you. Thank like you. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Tell us what taste is. Yes. Okay. Easy, simple. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What is taste? 
To answer that briefly, or one answer to that is a better way of saying that, comes from a Rebbe 200 years later, something, 200 something years later, 300 years, 200, whatever it is, 100 years, a few hundred years later, <laughs> called uh, Colonimus Kalman Shapira of Piazetsna. He is also known as the Eish Kodesh or the Warsaw Ghetto Rebbe. This source is coming to us from before the, the war in a book called Derech HaMelech. This is his drush from Parsha Pinchas in 1930. And I'm taking it totally out of context. He's talking about Torah study, but he uses the word ta'am, so it's related. (laughs) (laughs) Is that ta'am, taste, is impossible to pass to another. Rather, each one tastes it and feels it for themselves. And he goes on. What he's talking about here is that in Torah study, all three of us could be looking at the same source, almost as if we're doing that right now. And because of our, um, what I am calling our intellectual taste buds, we experience it differently. He's saying that no one will ever experience the source, uh, as in like the textual source, the same way because of their different positionalities. He doesn't use that word. That's the word I'm adding. But what this means for us, I think, is that taste, the taste of God is my unique experience of God. My experience of God will be different from both of yours, from my parents, from my brother's, Everyone has this own unique experience. And so if we tie that back into the Morinayim quote, it connects us back to the idea that it wasn't a positive or a negative Tom. It was just Tom. It was the idea that we, in tasting, are experiencing God, but some people taste, what's that? Where they taste it as soap? What's the? Oh, cilantro. Cilantro. Some people taste cilantro as soap, but I think it tastes like cilantro. So, you know, if for me, cilantro is God, like the taste of cilantro is God, but for you, it's soap. It's still God, but you just don't like God and when God soaps cilantro. Is that, I feel like in my head, that was going to be a good Right, <laughs> right. No, I get it. I'm on board. I went the opposite direction when I read that. Mm, what did you go? I took that to be like, look, we all know that we're all tasting this stuff and it's good. And we all know it's like the same thing we're experiencing and it's great. We just can't convey it in words. We just can't. Mm. We can't, it, it can mm. only exist. Right. You can only experience the thing that we all know we're collectively experiencing the same thing, but you can only get it by doing it. I didn't interpret it as uniqueness, as just like a thing that can't be conveyed through words. That's beautiful. Yeah. He actually, he talks about that a, a lot. The idea that you can't communicate, this specific Rebbe, the idea that you can't communicate the real experience of Torah learning through words. He actually says you have to t- experience it through song. Whoa. Which relates back to Tom Hamikra. True. Wow. Oh. And spec- and to a lot of other texts in Talmud about Tom oh. Hamikra that everyone listening will have to come to the class to learn. Yes. Wow. Oh, thank you for that, Michael. That was beautiful. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think let's jump to our last source and then I just want to like hear what you think about all these sources because again, this is just three sources I happen to put next to each other and that's only my Tom of the sources. But all right. Um, all right. At this point in the putting together a source sheet, I was like, man, like, what does that even mean? Like, what does it mean for me to be eating and thinking about God? What does it mean to be thinking about God at all? That's a whole deeper question. But what does it mean to be eating and thinking about my experience of God in the food? So I asked the question of how do we actually integrate that consciousness into our lives? Like, what like, what does that even mean? And when I was going over this source sheet with my friend and I showed her this, this source uh, that we're about to read, she made a really good point. I'm actually going to quote her directly. I wrote it down Great. from Hannah Gelman, who's a listener. And she said, there's a difference between philosophizing 
about all of this stuff and actually be in the ki- being in the kitchen making the challah. The last two people that we heard from were male Hasidic Rebbe's who probably weren't preparing any of their own food ever. And the next source is from someone who was actually making the food, which is a fundamentally different experience with food to actually be in the kitchen making challah versus, oh, all of a sudden it's Friday and there's challah on the table. Mm-hmm. So the source, which also points towards a different ta'am with food, a different like taste or experience with the food. It's not just, you know, sitting down to a meal, but there's actually labor involved. It's not abstract. It's a real lived experience. The next source is from Sarah Bas Tovim, who is a famous author of or composer of Tchines, which are these Yiddish prayers that were said, they were Yiddish, so they were, but they would say it in the front of the books would be like for women and men who are like women, which originally meant people who don't read Hebrew. Nowadays, the community has claimed it as meaning something slightly different, <laughs> which you can look at Noam Lerman's work for that, which is really wonderful. And the Right. Friend of the show, Noam Lerman. Actually, I think that this, I found it on Open Sitter, but I originally fa- got there through looking through their stuff. Anyway, this source I found really fascinating. It's an excerpt from a much larger prayer, and you'll see why I found it fascinating based on our conversation. This is prayer for the mitzvah of preparing challah, and in the middle of it, she says, may my challah be accepted as a sacrifice on the holy altar, and may my mitzvah accepted as if it had been properly executed there. But the fact that she uses the word korban, sacrifice, and mizbeach altar, I was just like, this is perfect. You know, here's someone who is functionally making food in the real world, actually using their hands to prepare the food with the consciousness that that food should be a replacement for the sacrifices and for the altar. And actually elsewhere, it wasn't in this prayer, but in a different tahina for preparing challah, there was something along the lines of, may my husband, when he makes hamotzi over this bread, have the same intention that I did, which I thought was wonderful. Mm. That, like the assumption there was that the person making the challah has the right intention. Like they know the mystical and spiritual reality of what they're doing. And the person making the bracha might not. So I just wanted to bring that as an, a way of both actualizing the theology we just talked about through one example. If listeners are already making challah on you know, Thursday and Fridays or eating dinner at any point in their lives, this is an example of how you can bring this, this theological idea into your actual life. And it was just a great source and it like worked so well. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful source. It really actually is giving me a little bit of a brain blast to um, a long, long, long time ago in the early uh, double digit number episodes of this show, we did a couple episodes about Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And my big novel experience of that text at the time was thinking back to the beginning of the story when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai goes into the cave to hide from the authorities. And at first, his wife brings him food every day. And then the decree intensifies. And he says, So women are basically like, uh, they have a a flighty temperament. Hmm. And da'at feels very connected to Tom, but that's not really what I'm thinking about right now. So my big experience of the text at that moment was to feel like Shimon Bar Yochai's experience in the cave is actually kind of an indictment of his misogyny because what happens because he abandons his wife is that God has to step in via miracle to fulfill the role that she was already fulfilling quite perfectly mm. uh, that he didn't trust her to keep fulfilling. Yeah. And this like feels very connected to like the, the spirituality of the kitchen 
and to, yeah, the one who prepares the food in a divine role. Hmm. My, my feeling about that whole story is basically all the miracles that had to happen were basically signs that things didn't come out as well as they could. If Shimon Bar Yochai had really been like on it, then none of that magical stuff would have had to happen. The magical stuff was just like the, the duct tape on the situation. Wow. Yeah. So thinking about the the person making the challah, thinking about all the stories of rabbis' wives in the Talmud, about the story of, I think it's Rabbi Hanina's wife who um, pretends to bake bread in the kitchen and make smoke so that people will not realize that they don't have any money for dough. Just like a lot of gr- a lot of great stories of people in the kitchen doing spiritual work and the rabbis of the Talmud being dildos about it. <laughs> That's what's on my mind immediately after after reading that text, which is great because I haven't thought about that God as the cook, God the housewife mm. in a while. Wow, I love that. I just think it's wild to imagine just someone would be talking about the temple in a non-meta way. You know, we talk in the podcast about lots of stuff. We're very aware that we're talking about that stuff while we're mm-hmm. talking about it. And maybe that's the curse of, uh, you know, podcasters, podcasters or modernity or, or something. It's just wild to just imagine someone just saying this in the course of their day to day life and to reference this event, you know, and I, obviously there's tons of examples of us talking about the temple, you know, but on this more casual level, like just baking bread, it's just so wild, that connection to the past. Right. There's something kind of spooky, in a good way, good spooky about it. Right. It also feels, um, going back to our our recent episode about the history of ordination, you know, the wonderful battle when they tried to revive Smicha, and basically the conclusion was like, we don't, don't bring that back. That <laughs> is, we're good. Like, we're fine, actually. Thinking about the temple and about, the experience we all get to have mm-hmm. having our misbeachs now mm-hmm. and how that would be lost by the creation of the temple. Basically the diasporic potential that's like inherent within these totally. drashot of like, you know, it's actually preferable that we don't have a temple because we each get to participate in the elevation of the Tamim. Mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. more than we would get to. There's a lot of interesting history in Hasidism of uh, the, they would, they would never say they don't want the temple, you know? Right. Of course. And also <laughs> they are a lot of moments where the, the, the table of the Rebbe becomes Jerusalem or the mm-hmm. table of the Rebbe becomes the temple. And while people would make pilgrimage to their Rebbe's, they'd be singing songs about going to Jerusalem. Um, there's a famous one about the Kotzke Rebbe. I don't remember how it goes, but the gist of it is basically like, Oh, I'm going to see the Rebbe. Oh, I'm going to Jerusalem. Like kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the, the Rebbe, the Rebbe's table becomes what like Jerusalem was earlier, which is like where heaven and earth meet. That's the Rebbe's table, which means where heaven and earth meet for me is my Rebbe, let's say in Chernobyl, but where heaven and earth meet for you might be in Kotsk and where heaven and earth meet for you. Right. And, you know, it's like, it's a, this democratizing of access while also being important to acknowledge the people who were traveling to see the Rebbe's were the men. And right. the people they were leaving at home were the wives and daughters and children who were making challah for no one. And the inclusion of, of this trina as well is part of an idea in Hasidic scholarship that originally it was kind of like scholars would say, like, there's no way to include women's voices because they weren't there. Like, how could you include them if they weren't there? And there's been a lot of work in the last, like, 
20 years, but even more recent, like 15, 10 years, to be like, that's actually not totally the case, guys. And like, there are these sources where these women who would be saying this tchina, their husbands would be going to the Rebbe at the same time. You know, it's like, this is part of the cultural milieu that this book was written in. And including that in the canon is part of the type of Hasidic scholarship that Gashmius and our like progressive whatever is trying to be in that strain of, of Hasidic scholarship. Right, right. And I mean, I do feel like it really has elevated the whole discussion to have mm. it present right. um, beyond sort of the theoretical discussion of mm-hmm. the practical. Right, right. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with the specific details of how the sparks work, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing. But there is this prescriptive thing you can do with the bread. Mm-hmm. It's like the specific details are like besides the point, like the general gist is there. And then right. I, I don't know. I don't know. What, it, what is it about the bread? It's just so... You don't have to show your theological work if you want to do the practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a confidence in not over-explaining. It's mm-hmm. like a... Maybe that's something I'm projecting onto the, onto the bread text. There's just mm-hmm. like kind of like a... We don't have to explain it because we just know it. Mm. And right. And there's something kind of shocking about that. Whereas like engaging with someone in a crazy metaphysical explanation of why they think the world is the way it is, just the context of the fact that you're in that metaphysical conversation makes the craziness, mm-hmm. the good craziness, I mean, the, the shockingness of it less shocking. Hmm. And, and it, it brings us back to our conversation from the very beginning about like the navel gazes to practical spectrum where it's like the first part of the source sheet is a lot more of the navel gazy kind of like, ooh, what would it be like if Tom was God? And the end is like, I'm making my challah. And right. there's something rad about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Wow. What a delightful journey through the kitchen and the dining room this has been. As we start to wind down the episode, what can people look forward to from Gashmius here soon? Totally. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Like this was so much fun and I'm really glad to be learning with y'all. And this is the point of Gashmius is, you know, we're putting stuff out, but it's really just to be learning with people. So this is a dream. We will be God willing having our next volume out this summer. Volume two, we have a lot of really great pieces that are going to be in it. Definitely worthwhile to be messaging friends about. <laughs> and But how will it taste? That's And it's going to be know. delicious. It's going to be... <laughs> Oh, we should do like recipes. That's a good idea. Um, but uh, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> we'll. Um, yeah. So uh, the next volume, volume two, will be out this summer. Along with this source sheet, will be part of that release, as well as different resources for learning about Hasidism. We have a podcast library on our website. We have a neo Hasidic starter pack, which are also podcasts but shorter. So you just listen to these six rather than these twenty or whatever. All right. We're going to start putting out a lot more resources for the holidays. A lot of things coming up soon, God willing. But the main thing, volume two, out this summer. Incredible. Well, we will link this source sheet and also to Gashmius in the pod description. Thank you so much for coming on the show and leading us on this wonderful journey. And to all our listeners out there, Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Thanks. Thanks.